Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. No matter how healthy individuals are, as they age, their joints will show some changes in mobility. Older adults often believe they will have to live with joint pain as a normal part of aging. In truth, there are a number of treatment options available. Today, I have two guests, Lexi Bingnier, nurse practitioner with Ortho Virginia, and Sean Cohen, physical therapist with Virginia Hospital Center Joint Replacement Center. They're both going to talk about common joint conditions among older adults and non-surgical measures that can be taken to ease their symptoms. And then they'll also discuss joint replacement surgery, including what patients need to know before the procedure and what to expect afterwards. So welcome, Lexi and Sean, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us on. Okay, well, Sean, I always like to start with a brief anatomy and physiology lesson so folks know what we're talking about in our program. So let's start with you. Um, Explain what are joints in the body and what is the role of these joints? Yeah, absolutely. So joints are generally where two bones come together. Um, And when most people think of joints, I think most people think about freely moving joints, but there's also some joints that are um, more fixed that will provide some stability or protection. Um, But when we talk about movable joints, um, we're more talking about joints that will be able to allow you to provide some sort of range of motion, pr- produce some force. So those joints allow you to do everyday things like walk, lift, run, um, carry, and, and other things as well. Okay. And as I understand it, there are six types of movable joints. Can you explain to us what those are? Yeah, absolutely. Um So a lot of the joints are actually named pretty intuitively by either how they look or what they do. Um, So you have your ball and socket joints. So that would be like your shoulder or your hip. Um, And those are exactly how they sound. You have a a big sphere ball that fits into a socket um, and they're actually the most movable joints. Um, And then you have hinge joints, which are also named pretty intuitively. Those ones just provide movement in one plane. So think of things like a door um, and then joints in your body that would be like a hinge joint would be like your your hip or your elbow. And then you have condyloid joints, um, which are probably the least intuitively named, but they're kind of similar to a ball and socket joint in that you have more of a um, a spherical side and then more of a cup um, side to the joint. And those ones are just a little bit less movable than your 
ball and socket, they only generally provide um, a couple planes of motion. Um, and those ones are generally found in joints like um, your fingers or your wrist. And then some of the um, joints that are a little bit less popular in your body are, um, you have some pivot joints, which would be located in your elbow. So when you move your hand um, from showing your palm up to turning your hand down, that's considered a pivot joint. And then also when you shake your head, yes and no, um, you have some pivot joints between your, your spine and your head. Um, and then there's also a, a couple others. So you have a, a saddle joint in your thumb, which is pretty movable. And then the last type of joint would just be um, gliding joints, which are found in your, your wrists and your, um, your ankles. Who knew there were so many yeah. things going on simultaneously <laughs> in our yeah. bodies, and uh, which is why, Lexi, there are probably many types of joint conditions, but help us understand what are the most common? Um, so I would, I like to think of it kind of in two separate buckets. So you have acute joint conditions, which would be, you know, um, if you fell and you fractured your shoulder, fractured your hip, and um, that kind of thing. Um, or if you have a, an injury moment. So um, some people get like a meniscal tear in their knee. I'm sure you've heard of people getting that, um, which can lead to joint problems. Um, but I think probably, uh, especially in older adults, the most common types of joint problems have to do with degenerative changes or wear and tear um, on them. So those can be when you're born or when you're a young kid, think of your joints, like your cartilage, like a, a road that was just paved. It's perfectly smooth. And over time, you know, as you get older, there's a lot of cars riding, you played basketball in high school. Um, uh, that road starts to get some potholes in it and everything like uh, areas are thinner. Um, and that would be what happens when you have arthritis, which we'll kind of be focusing on. And then other things can be like tendonitis, um, rotator cuff issues are common in the shoulder. Um, so those would be sort of the two big buckets as far as acute versus chronic joint problems. And to that point, Lexi, talk about the causes and the risk factors that can cause these joint problems. And I think I'm hearing already that older adults are more vulnerable, but let's just start with causes and risk factors and, you know, why all this, this starts happening. So certainly um, older adults are more at risk for these problems, mainly because you've just lived longer. So your joints have just been put through, um, you know, more wear and tear on them. So age is definitely um, the, probably the strongest risk factor for developing things like rotator cuff tendonitis or osteoarthritis. Um, another big thing is what type of activities you do, what, what type of job do you do? Did you play a lot of sports when you're younger? So kind of the, the uh, activities that lead to wear and tear. A big component is actually your genes, you know, so you can blame some things on your parents um, and it, arthritis can run in families. Um, so that's a big one. Um, obesity. So we know if you're overweight um, that that is linked to um, more degenerative changes, increased risk of arthritis. Um, and uh, we'll talk about later, but keeping your weight um, at a healthy healthy weight is one of the best things you can do to not only prevent um, these issues, but also um, to help kind of reverse some of the symptoms. Uh, we talked about an acute injury. So traumatic injuries um, can lead to this. Uh, obviously, if you're 
if you have a fall, you know, sometimes people have bad luck, but especially as uh, we age, our bone density can go down. So we have things called like fragility fractures, which are related to bone density. Um, and they can also uh, lead to this, some autoimmune disorders going back to genetics. Um, so, you know, if you have rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, um, those can lead to those conditions. And then, you know, certain types of medications people are put on for different things um, and some different, some other different medical factors can also cause or put you at higher risk for these joint conditions. I was wondering also, uh, Lexi, if um, being a smoker or maybe um, excessive alcohol use, would either of those have any um, impact on the possibility of joint problems? Yes. So those things definitely do impact you. Smoking has been shown to have increased risks of osteoarthritis. Um, alcohol use um, can cause something called avascular necrosis, which is kind of where the blood supply to the uh, bone um, gets kind of cut off. And so the bone dies leading to, uh, you know, arthritis of your joints too. So um, both of those things definitely are not great for your bones. Okay. Lots of different risk factors and causes here. So Sean, let's come back to you. In terms of people who have these joint problems, talk about the most common physical symptoms of these joint conditions. And as you discuss them, explain to us, do these symptoms vary with with the condition? Yeah, I think with all symptoms, there's going to be a varying amount within that symptom that you experience. So pain, um, I guess I'll start there. That is probably the most common thing that people complain of just because it is the most bothersome typically. Um, so you can have varying degrees of pain. Um, and then other things that we see commonly are stiffness or loss of range of motion. That's, that's another very common symptom with arthritis. Um, so sometimes over time, people will experience things that we call contractures where you actually lose some of the range. Um, so sometimes people can't extend their knee or their hip um, or lift up their arm all the way. Um, and it kind of prevents them from doing things like they used to be able to. You can also have swelling or joint effusion. So some of these things you, you can see like a, a swollen knee or a swollen ankle. Um, so you can have varying degrees of swelling. You can also have popping and grinding sensations, um, what we call crepitus in the joint. And then you can have things like redness and um, weakness as well. And I would imagine, Sean, that there are also mental and emotional symptoms that are related to these kinds of conditions. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, patients will commonly have emotional symptoms when they come to you for um, knee pain. And I think it's a very um, undertreated thing. Already when patients come to you in the office, they are coming to you for help. And I think in just alone, that is an emotional experience for a patient. But because they're having pain, they're also unable to do things that they weren't able to do before. So maybe they can't walk as far as they were able to before. Maybe they can't participate in their, their sports that they like to participate in, um, or they can't go to social events like they used to. And all of those things can contribute to um, patients feeling 
um, helpless or alone. And it can also play into things um, where patients start to avoid doing things because of pain and it can lead to depression. So absolutely there is a, a mental and emotional component to these joint issues. And so when a patient comes to see their healthcare provider, I mean, talking with both of you, one of you is a nurse practitioner, the other a physical therapist, help us understand how a diagnosis of a joint condition is determined. Are there certain diagnostic tests that are used? Sean, why don't we start with you? And then Lexi, you can give a perspective uh, from what you see in your patients. So with physical therapy, we tend to diagnose based on more of the movement dysfunctions we see um, or the activity limitations. So someone might come to you for joint pain, um, but we will diagnose um, as someone having difficulty being able to squat down um, or inability to go up a flight of stairs. So that would be more physical therapy diagnosis. Um, but we always keep in mind the medical diagnosis because it can help um, when you're talking about selecting your interventions for your patients. So it's, it's very helpful to know what the medical diagnosis is so that you are prescribing appropriate exercises and treatments to your patients so that you're not compounding onto the issue. Okay. Lexi, you want to add anything to that? Sure. So, you know, when, when patients come into our office, um, the first thing that we do is we try to get a really good history from them. So, you know, when does your knee hurt? Does it hurt first thing in the morning and then get better throughout the day? Um, does it hurt at night? Do you feel stiff when you stand up, but once you get moving, you know, things improve? Um, so asking, you know, good questions about the patient's history helps us. Um, we also have sort of some physical exam tests that we do. Um, that help us to kind of uh, determine the diagnosis. And then, uh, you know, we order x-rays. So looking at x-rays, you'll be able to see the degenerative changes in the joint. Um, and that helps to guide you as well. Sometimes depending on if you're concerned about one of those rheumatologic uh, disorders that I talked about, um, you may have some lab work ordered for you. Um, and then, uh, MRI, CT scan, there's other things. So, um, but the, the kind of core foundational thing would be your physical exam, getting a good history um, and looking at some x-rays on a patient to help uh, determine the diagnosis. And, and thank you. That's very helpful for both of you. And, and again, I mentioned that, you know, Sean, you're a physical therapist, Lexi, you're a nurse practitioner. Help our listeners understand there are uh, healthcare providers with whom both of you work that help to to diagnose and treat these joint conditions. Can you talk just briefly about uh, the physicians that are usually involved in treating joint conditions? Um, so, you know, kind of frontline of defense would be your primary care providers. Um, as we've mentioned, this is very common, um, uh, common reasons why people seek um, help. And so your primary care provider is a great uh, first start. There's orthopedic um, surgeons, um, and then there's also uh, non-surgical orthopedic, you know, sports medicine providers that treat these conditions. Um, sometimes rheumatologists um, also treat that. Uh, within those groups, you have nurse practitioners like myself. We have physician assistants who also uh, athletic trainers. They all can kind of 
help to work on this. And then we rely a lot on our physical and occupational therapy colleagues for managing symptoms before surgery, and then also helping to rehab um, patients postoperatively. Okay. Well, Sean, did you have anything to add to that? I think the only thing I have to add other than the physical therapy aspect is that there's um, from like a rehab aspect, there's also occupational therapists that can kind of jump into the mix as well. An occupational therapist would work more on what we call your activities of daily living um, or your ability to, to do your everyday things. Um, so if you, if you have um, difficulty being able to get to the bathroom or bathe um, or even things like manage your medications and things like that, um, some fine motor issues, um, occupational therapists can help with that. Well, and and that then helps us to understand treatment. And again, I'm going to ask for each of your perspective, Sean, since we just um, asked you that question, we'll start with you. The the process for determining the treatment for joint conditions. Um, I mentioned in my intro about there is uh, non-invasive procedures or non-surgical measures can you talk a little bit about that? And then, Lexi, you can add in terms of what you see. Sure. So when it comes to factors for um, consideration when you're treating joint conditions, I, I think it really comes down to the patient. Um, so how the patient perceives their their issue. So if, if their pain is really limiting them and it's um, causing them to um, have limitations in their daily life, if if they're not able to do what they want to do, um, you know, if they like walking around the block, if they like participating in sports, if they like, um, if they have to go up and down stairs. Um, so it really kind of centers around what the, the patient's um, perceived disability is or where their limitations lie. And then um, when it comes down to specific treatments, um, you could look at things like the patient's prognosis, um, uh, how, how old they are, their age, um, what their perception of the treatments are, um, and then education about treatment options. So there's all, all sorts of different things that um, both the patient and the, the providers can, can kind of consider when they're looking at putting together a treatment plan. Okay, Lexi, anything to add to that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think definitely I agree with Sean. It's very individual, um, patient-specific based. Um, kind of in general, when you if you came into the office to see me, we'd go back to talking about how often does this bother you? You know, is this, well, when I play tennis, my knees bother me, so it's only occasionally, or is it a constant thing? Um, and that also helps to guide us. So, you know, initially we start out by suggesting lifestyle modifications that weight loss that we had talked about, um, getting you into physical therapy to work on strengthening, um, you know, uh, strengthening the areas. Um, then when that, if, you know, those things don't work, um, there are medications we can use that try to help manage some of those symptoms. Um, there are injections that can be given that can help to calm down some of the symptoms. And then, you know, finally, um, we talk about surgery. Um, I think an important thing to realize, especially as we talk about, uh, we're kind of moving more into the joint replacement um, line, but, you know, degenerative changes, osteoarthritis, it's a degenerative process. 
So it's not going to get better on its own. Um, there are certain things that you come to see us for that, that we can get you through and, and they can get better. But specifically, arthritis is a degenerative process, meaning it's always going to keep moving forward. And so our goal with our treatment is to control those symptoms and to keep you as active and living the life you want um, as long as possible. So we try to use all of those different um, uh, you know, multimodal ways of treating the pain. Um, and then if we need to, then we do surgery because uh, surgery is really the only thing that's going to get rid of the problem for good. Okay, and and I appreciate that, and we are going to be talking about the joint replacement surgery in the in the second half of the interview. But I just wanted to focus a little bit more about physical activity and exercise, and I wanted to get back to you, Sean. Is that uh, recommended a lot for treating joint conditions, and then taking it one step further? Since you are a physical therapist, do you treat a lot of patients then who? are not good surgical candidates or would prefer not to have surgery? What, what do you see, Sean? So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a great place to start for anyone who's having any joint pain is to start with a conservative way of treating it. And the best um, way to treat it initially, in my opinion, is to start with um, physical activity and exercise. Um, and as Lexi was talking about um, earlier, so, so things like lifestyle modifications and um, if you have any um, weight issues, you can work on um, bringing your weight down to relieve some pressure from your joints. Um, but things like strengthening around the joints, so strengthening the muscles, working on your flexibility can, can um, take some pressure off of your joints. Um, so if we're talking about range of motion, if you have a significantly limited range of motion, then you're then you're using those same spots in your joints over and over and over again um, and continuing to wear those areas out. Or if you have weakness in um, areas around your joint, maybe you are not um, moving in a in a mechanically appropriate way. So you can you can work on your body mechanics to take some pressure off of your joints and and also strengthening the muscles around can, can work on um, evening out forces um, between different joints. So if you have weakness at your, your hip, it could can cause more force going through your knees. So just working on um, strengthening different areas of body to relieve as much pressure from the, the joint that is causing you um, pain um, or um, any disability in the first place. Um, so I think absolutely. Um, Go to physical therapy, work on some sort of physical activity or home exercise plan and start there. Um, if if in the end you're, you're still having a bunch of pain and you decide to go with a more invasive approach, um, I don't think there's going to be any loss for it because you're, you're working on addressing your, your limitations in the first place. Um, and you're after surgery likely going to have to work on strengthening and range of motion again. So it's, it's good to kind of get the ball rolling and get educated and um, get your feet wet so that you, you know what to expect afterwards as well. Um, and I guess one, one other thing is um, it's good to have a relationship with um, an orthopedist or another physician so that if, if you are having trouble getting to the next stage in, in your therapy, it can be helpful to use things in conjunction with therapy like pain medication or like injections, things like that. Some things that are slightly more 
invasive, but not quite to the point of surgery. Okay, well, and we're going to talk more about that in the second half of this interview, but uh, we're going to take a short break right now. In case you turned in late, we are talking with Lexi Bingnier, who is a nurse practitioner with Ortho Virginia, and Sean Cohn, physical therapist with Virginia Hospital Center Joint Replacement Center. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are having a great discussion about joint replacement and joint uh, conditions. And uh, our guests are Lexi Bingner, nurse practitioner with Ortho Virginia, and Sean Cohn, who is a physical therapist with Virginia Hospital Center Joint Replacement Center. And we're going to really talk a lot about joint replacement surgery in this half of the interview. But I want to get back to you, Lexi. In the first part, you talked a little bit about injections and medications. And uh, help our listeners understand when that's usually the preferred uh, treatment. And are there certain patients who wouldn't be good candidates? Tell us more. So I would say that any person coming in um, to, to our office who is diagnosed with arthritis pretty much is going to start with medications or injections before we jump to discussing surgery. So you always, we always want to do the least invasive thing that we can first and then move our way up. Um, so I would say very, very rarely um, is surgery the first thing that's discussed with you um, at the appointment. So there's different kinds of medications that um, we use. Uh, specifically, the one that I'd say we most use is anti-inflammatory medication. Arthritis within the knee, um, because you don't have smooth um, surfaces, you have kind of rough surfaces rubbing against each other, causes inflammation. And so by using anti-inflammatory medications, we're able to calm down that inflammation and to provide pain relief. Um, and then another medication that we use a lot and you know, is just Tylenol, acetaminophen, and that helps to block some of the pain signals from you know, leaving the joint uh, and going to the brain. Um, so the combination of acetaminophen and anti-inflammatories can be super helpful. Um, there's also, they make, you know, creams that you can put on, um, that have anti-inflammatory or numbing properties, and those can be helpful too. So patients who have really high blood pressure, a lot of times they cannot take anti-inflammatory medication because it can affect your blood pressure. If you have uh, stomach issues like stomach ulcers, a lot of times we try not to give you anti-inflammatories because again, they can mess up your stomach and then certain, um, heart conditions. Um, if you're on certain medications, you shouldn't take anti-inflammatories. Um, those patients, uh, we would recommend those gels trying that. Um, and sometimes we might be a little bit more aggressive in talking about injections. So there's sort of two, uh, workhorse injections that we use for, um, osteoarthritis management or degenerative joint disease management. The most common that I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of is a corticosteroid injection. So 
Those steroids are again, very, very strong anti-inflammatories and we're injecting them directly into the, the joint where it's bothering you. So they help to calm down the inflammation in that area. Usually those injections are a combination of steroid and numbing medicine. So the numbing medicine kicks, works quickly. Usually as soon as we do the injection, patients will say, oh my gosh, my knee feels better already. But that numbing medicine does wear off a couple hours later. So sometimes your knee is a little bit more sore after the injection. That's normal. And the steroids can take up to a week before you get your full benefit from them. So, you know, I always warn patients, you know, keep the good, the positive energy, the shot, you know, just because it's sore a couple hours later the next day doesn't mean that it didn't work. Um, the second type of injection we, we use are called hyaluronic acid injections. So in our synovial, our synovial fluid within our joint um, that bathes the joint and keeps it lubricated, um, there's a substance called hyaluronic acid. As we get older, um, that breaks down. And so the synovial fluid becomes thinner. So there's less cushion uh, in your joints. And so we are injecting, you know, additional hyaluronic acid to sort of bulk up the um, synovial fluid in the joint to help with lubrication and the inflammation. So if you think of a cortisone injection, like water, when we inject hyaluronic acid, it's like motor oil. So it's a little bit thicker. It just adds some bulk to it. Um, those are the two main injections that we use, but, uh, there's also some injections that people may have read about or seen ads for that are not FDA approved. They're sort of experimental injections. One of them is PRP or platelet rich plasma. And then there's also stem cell injections that typically they remove, um, either blood or stem cells from the patient. And then they can re inject them into the area with the hope that that will, um, introduce some healing properties. Um, every surgeon, every doctor that you go and see has a little bit different views on this. Every office has different procedures. So certainly you can get more information about that, but the two workhorses would be steroid injections and hyaluronic acid injections. And one thing I meant to talk about with the steroid injections is um, the corticosteroid can raise your blood sugar. So if you have um, diabetes, especially if you have very poorly controlled diabetes, we would not want to give you steroid injections. That would be, you know, one, one reason why we would say we shouldn't do this just as just so when you go to the doctor, you know, if they're asking you about that, that's why, because it can raise your blood sugar, um, pretty significantly for a few days following the injection. Sorry, lots of, lot of information there. <laughs> well, and, and that's really good. In fact, the other quick question so that people are aware, are there any side effects, particularly to sometimes people can't sleep as well with the steroid injections? So that would be usually um, if you take like uh, steroid pills, you can get kind of, you go manic for a little bit. It really amps you up, kind of revs you up. Typically with the injections, you don't have the same um, systemic side effects like with sleep and stuff. There is something called a, a steroid flare, which is where your body sort of has a over inflammatory response to the steroid. It's rare, but it does happen. Usually the most common issue would be just that your knee is sore from, you know, the needle. Um, that would be the most common side effect from it. Okay. Well, very good information about injections and medications. Thank you for that. And so let's move into joint replacement surgery. Lexi, explain what exactly it is, what, what happens there, and which of the joints, uh, Sean told us about so many joints earlier in the program, but which joints actually can be replaced? 
So like we talked about earlier, um, on the end of our bones is covered with something called cartilage. Cartilage is normally perfectly smooth. You know, over time, wear and tear, that cartilage sort of gets beat up a little bit. So joint replacement surgery is removing the arthritic joint surface on the end of the two bones and replacing them with um, metal, plastic, um, what we call a prosthesis or an artificial bearing surface that you use then to articulate. The most common joint replacements that we talk about, and specifically with our joint replacement center at Virginia Hospital Center, would be total hips, total knees. You can also have your shoulder replaced. There's total ankles. There's total elbows. There's joint replacements in the in the hand. But um, the most common joint replacements would be hips, knees, and then total shoulders. And then you know the really the main indications for getting a joint replacement. So not every you know, not every surgery is one size fits all. The main indications for a uh, total joint replacement would be arthritis, um, certain fractures we treat with a joint replacement. And then uh, sometimes if people have like tumors in their bone in those joints, then we treat that also with a joint replacement. But the, the overwhelming um, indication is arthritis or this degenerative changes just as we get older. Okay, that was what I was going to ask you. What what are the conditions that are usually indicated for joint replacement surgery? So those are the ones, correct? Yes. Okay. So, Sean, now some folks may not be familiar with a joint replacement center, which is the organization that you're associated with at Virginia Hospital Center. So what is the process? How does the Virginia Hospital Center Joint Replacement Center actually prepare patients for surgery? This is quite a process, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's all sorts of planning that goes into these procedures. Um, so patients will start out at a physician's office, um, um, like with Lexi, and after a patient has come to them and they've, they've said that, you know, I'm having this knee pain, it's been going on for all these years, and I've, um, you know, I've been unable to do certain things, um, they will work on trying some conservative measures with the patient. Um, so that could be your physical therapy, your joint injections, uh, medication. Um, and then once it, once it escalates to the point where those interventions aren't working, um, I think that's when it kind of gets to the point where the surgeon will start discussing um, joint replacement. Um, so they will start going over the education about the benefits of the surgery, like the prosthesis, um, um, any risks associated with the surgery. And then that's when it would kind of come over to Virginia Hospital Center. And um, we would kind of get a, um, a list of patients that are coming in for their joint replacement surgery. And then we reach out to them to um, give them an educational booklet, which essentially goes over all sorts of information for what should, they should expect when they come into the hospital, how to get prepared, um, you know, what the nurses will do with them, what the physical therapist will do with them, what the occupational therapist will do with them, um, what equipment you should have, how you should get your home set up. Um, and then we also have a, a class that we have with the patients. So um, since the pandemic, we've been doing a Zoom class, um, and then we also have a, more of an on-demand pre-recorded class. 
And I, I also get calls in my office um, and answer questions that patients have. So we, we have all sorts of different ways to reach out to them um, and kind of get them the education that they need so that they can come to their surgery and um, feel prepared on their day of surgery and afterwards moving forward as well. Okay, well, and that is a good segue into asking Lexi, you mentioned, Sean, about the risks of the procedure and the benefits. Talk more about that, Lexi. So the risks of you know any surgery, we always talk about the risks associated with anesthesia. Um, there's always a risk of infection, of bleeding, of injury to the nerves that surround your joint. Um, so those are sort of the standard risks uh, for any surgery. The benefits of total joint um, replacement are improved pain, you have a better quality of life, um, improved mobility. Um, so those would sort of be the risk benefits. Okay. And then if joints on both sides, you're talking about knees or shoulders or, or hips, if replacement is needed for, on both sides, are those these procedures usually performed at the same time, Lexi, or one at a time? So certainly in upper extremities, we would really, you do one side at a time because uh, you don't want to take out both arms. So if you have a total shoulder, you're in a sling for usually a month to six weeks postoperatively. So if you have two slings on, you know, you can't eat, you can't feed yourself, all that kind of stuff. Um, lower extremity uh, total joints, it is possible to do bilateral. Um, at our hospital, we do do occasionally bilateral total knee replacements, um, but they are definitely much less common, um, mainly because, you know, all those risks that we talked about, the risks go up when you have bilateral. So there's an increased risk for cardiovascular problems. There's an increased risk for uh, postoperative blood clots. Um, rehab is more difficult if both sides are operated on. Um, so really the candidates for bilateral joint replacement would be very healthy. They don't have any other medical problems. Usually they're typically younger. Um, um, so I, you can do it, but it's definitely not as common. And to that point then, Sean, uh, listening to what Lexi was just saying, are there instances when somebody does actually come to the joint replacement center and yet you or the physician or you, the health team recommends that perhaps joint replacement surgery should not be performed? Are there circumstances like that, Sean? Yeah, I, I think some of the, the more, um, I guess, obvious reasons why not to get a, a joint replacement would come down to those medical risks. Um, but I do think there are a variety of other considerations that patients should take when they are kind of considering a joint replacement. And I, I think it really comes down to what your expected outcome of the surgery is. So if you're, if you're like a 60 year old guy and you want to get back to playing football because that's what you did when you were 30, then, or even younger than that's, that's probably not you know, going to be an outcome of this surgery. So if that's what you would like to be able to do, then maybe a joint replacement surgery isn't right for you. Um, or if you if you look on the other end of the spectrum, if you um, have other health conditions or other comorbidities that are really limiting your ability to move and uh, having a joint replacement isn't likely to have much of an effect on, on that mobility, then um, having a joint replacement surgery might not be the right answer for you. And then coming down to your, your 
preparation and um, having a social support system, um, maybe not overall for not having a surgery, but making sure that you are prepared and have everything in place that you need and having a support person that can help you during your recovery kind of goes into planning for the surgery or so maybe you would just have to um, delay or postpone your surgery if, if that were the case, if you didn't have any additional help at the time. All of those are good points. And Lexi, sometimes I think a lot of folks hear about joint replacement uh, surgery, but maybe are unfamiliar with like the materials that are used in uh, in the surgery itself as, as, as the components that are put in the body to replace the, the diseased uh, parts. Talk a little bit more about what those materials are. And, and I was also wondering whether, what happens if a patient is allergic to these materials? Has, has that happened? Yeah. So the majority of uh, total joint arthroplasty, the prostheses are made either from um, something called cobalt chromium or titanium. There's also a highly cross-linked polyethylene liner that goes in. So if you think of your knee, for example, you have metal on the femur, the top bone, you'll have metal on the bottom or your tibia. And then in between there, there's a plastic piece that acts as sort of the bumper pad between the two. Um, and that's polyethylene. We also use ceramic implants. Um, so like total hips, the, the ball is a ceramic implant. Typically issues related to allergies are related to the nickel that's in some of the implants. It's sort of a controversial topic about metal hypersensitivity, metal allergies. So if you have a true nickel allergy, there are um, like hypoallergenic components that can be used. Um, and that would be something to talk to the surgeon about, talk with your allergy, you know, your allergist about. Um, there are things that you can do uh, if you have an allergy, but for the most part, um, it, it's not a huge problem. And Lexi, taking it one step further, are there possible other complications that might occur as a result of this kind of surgery? Yeah. So certainly, you know, the a huge complication we worry about is infection. You know, in a total joint replacement, we're putting metal inside the body, a foreign object inside the body. So your blood supply can't fight off infection like it normally would if it was bone. So, you know, if you get an, uh, an infection in, in a total joint, um, it's a little bit more complicated. And that's the one we really worry about. Other infections that we worry about are stiffness postoperatively, which is why, you know, doing the exercises that we give you getting into your post-op physical therapy is super important because stiffness is a big one. Um, we always worry about an increased risk for dislocation, um, total hips specifically. Um, we always talk about an increased risk for dislocation there. Uh, after surgery, you are at an increased risk for blood clots or um, venothromboembolism. Sometimes people here are called DVTs. Um, and so usually after surgery, you're put on an anticoagulant for about a month to help prevent that. And then, you know, we always worry about is an injury to the nerves that um, run by the, by the joint itself, which, you know, during surgery, you take a lot of care to protect, but that's one of those complications that um, can happen. So Sean, based on what Lexi was talking about with respect to these complications, I would imagine that a lot of, and you mentioned this a little earlier, uh, there's a lot of education as to what to expect postoperatively and long-term. So what do you tell your patients? How should they care for their joint replacement long-term? Any other kind of post-op advice that you, you give these folks? 
I think my best advice for long term would just be to stay active. I, I think a lot of people, um, when they're done with the rehab, might stop their exercises. So um, I would I just encourage patients to not only continue their exercises, but continue to progress them and really um, see where you can get with your strength and your mobility so that you can kind of get the best possible outcome. And um, also in working at your strength um, and continuing up a routine, it, it just helps maintain um, and kind of allow yourself to continue to do um, whatever it is that you would like to be able to do. So if you achieved your goals to be able to walk in, up and down a couple of flights of stairs and continue to do your exercises so that you can continue to maintain the strength to do so. Um, and also working on your flexibility, um, cardiovascular fitness, um, things like that. And I would imagine though that based on going through major surgery, which is certainly what this is, that they may have to start out more slowly just to kind of get to a whatever level they want to. Would you agree, Sean? Yeah. If, if you start from discharging from the hospital, um, I think if your initial phase, um, it's really important to just make sure that you have assistance at home and make sure that um, if it has been decided between you and your physician that you're going to start physical therapy or occupational therapy early to make sure that that is set up. Um, and then moving forward, just um, as I was saying before, just once you are finished with your rehab phase, just continue to stay active and perform your exercises. Well, and good. That's a good segue into, is physical therapy usually prescribed after joint replacement surgery? Talk a little bit more about that and, and the kinds of treatments that would be recommended and maybe even talk a little bit more about occupational therapy. You you had mentioned about OTs before. So just curious as to what kind of activities would be prescribed and, and for how long, you know, one month, two months, six months, what, what would we need to know? So a lot of times physical therapy is prescribed after surgery. And a lot of times in the, in the early preoperative phase or sorry, postoperative phases, um, a lot of times what that surgery um, recovery would look like in your physical therapy would be focused around um, getting your muscles activated um, strengthening those muscles um, and working on range of motion. So kind of just building your strength back up and working on range of motion. Um, and you could you could start um, you know doing bed exercises and then you would gradually work up to a point where you're standing or doing um, exercises on the on the floor um, and working towards more functional patterns. So, um, maybe you would start with doing leg lifts, but then eventually you would work on things that are more functional, like squatting, um, standing up and um, uh, sitting down on chairs, going up and down stairs, things like that. So always um, just kind of keeping a functional context to your exercises with the the eventual progression of all your exercises being a workup to a functional activity, um, just to ensure that there's um, carryover and and it also kind of helps the exercises be more successful. And how might uh, an occupational therapist, what kinds of uh, activities would would an OT perhaps help a, a patient postoperatively? 
Right. So in the hospital, um, all of our joint replacement patients have an occupational therapy consult. And right after surgery, just because of pain and stiffness or some kind, sometimes precautions that would prevent you to um, either reach down to your feet or bring them up to you, um, your occupational therapist will kind of educate you and teach you how to do things like getting dressed just because if you are unable to get down to your foot, doing things like putting your socks, your shoes, your, your pants on can be difficult. And then also um, safety with getting up and down from a toilet or while you're in the shower, um, just to make sure that you're as safe as possible, um, especially considering that the, the highest incidence of falls actually occurs in the bathroom. So it's, it's important to kind of get that education um, and learn how to do those tests safely, just because you really want to avoid falls after surgery. Um, and then I think you asked earlier, um, uh, how long do these things last? Um, generally, your, your therapy will last somewhere in the um, eight to 12 week range. So about two to three months. And, and Sean, one final question in that regard about activities and lifestyle practices post-op. Would there be mm -hmm. anything that you could tell our listeners that they won't be able to do? Or they it might be a long time before they can do it after joint replacement surgery? So after joint replacement surgeries, because you are having a, a prosthetic um, placed into your body and into your bone, um, you're, you're not going to be able to get back to high impact activity. So um, any high impact activities like um, running, jumping, like contact sports, things like that. But you can get back to um, lower activity sports, like um, things like doubles tennis or um, like walking. You, you could do like lower impact cardio, like a rowing machine or um, possibly an elliptical. Um, it, it depends kind of on your activity level before surgery as well. So say you were at a high level of activity before surgery, or you're much more likely to get back to um, doing higher level activity afterwards. Well, and that's a good reason to get the advice and, uh, and, and assistance from their OTs and, and PT uh, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so that's helpful. We're getting close to the end of the interview, but Lexi, I just wanted to ask you one quick question about how long do joint replacements usually last? Kind of variable depending on the person, but overall there's a about a 0.5% failure rate per year after surgery. So when you look at the numbers, 20 years um, from a joint replacement, roughly 90% of uh, people still have their original joint in. So they last for um, you know a good long time. Uh, we look at that more because if you needed to have your joint replaced at a younger age, you know, you, you might get 20 years out of it. So let's say you're 40 and you needed to get your joint replaced. You may have to get, you know, a revision or maybe even two revisions down the road. Um, so depending on how old you are, um, it could last you the rest of your life. Well, that's good news then. That's a real uh, yeah, exactly. testimonial for a joint replacement. So final question, Lexi, any particular resources for older adults and their families to learn more about joint conditions and replacement surgery? You get one of the last final words, and then we'll turn to Sean for the final word. So the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has a really great uh, website. It's called OrthoInfo. 
Um, you can Google OrthoInfo or the website's orthoinfo.aaos.org. Um, and they have information about any kind of orthopedic issue you can think of, including specifically arthritis, total joint replacement, all those things we talked about. Um, they also have good uh, home exercises you can do to work on the strengthening that we've been talking about, um, work on your balance. Um, so that is a resource that I give to my patients all the time and is really helpful. Okay. And Sean? In addition to that, you know, starting with your any of your practitioners that you've been working with are a great resource. So um, your orthopedic, um, your primary care physician, if you're working with a physical therapy, that's a great start. Um, and then Virginia Hospital Center has a joint replacement website. It's vhchealth.org slash TJR. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, lots of good advice here today about joint replacement and uh, joint conditions. And so given that, I want to thank Lexi Bingner, nurse practitioner with Ortho Virginia, and Sean Cohn, physical therapist with Virginia Hospital Center Joint Replacement Center, for joining me today. And if you want to learn more about Aging Matters, of course, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio and TV show content that we've produced, and you can log on to the Aging Matters podcasts, which are uh, located on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, which you can learn more about by visiting inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you again for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.